This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Book of Nehemiah, uh, last but one, so penultimate uh, talk on Nehemiah. And last week we talked about how the, there was this big kind of, everybody in the city uh, gathered together with one mind and one heart and say, read the book, read the story to us. And we talked about that, how that, that book, the first five books of the, uh, of the Old Testament is called the, the Law of Moses. And, it, it, and, then we did, and then we've read on today a kind of summary of what's in the Law of Moses. But I, I showed it like this last week, that actually the, the Israelites were uh, uh, people that had been called by God, that Abraham was living in, in what is now Iraq, and God spoke to him. Uh, he wasn't a God worshipper, but he's a God fearer. <clears throat> God spoke to him and said, go to the land of Canaan, which is now the land of Palestine, Israel, and I'm going to give that to you. And what happened, he moved there, he lived in tents, moving around, and they had uh, sons and, 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 and daughters, and they uh, married, and they became a, 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 small, a family of you know, probably 250. They then, because of a famine, went into Egypt and became uh, slaves in Egypt and were enslaved in Egypt uh, for 400 years. They were uh, slaves in Egypt and uh, they cried out to God for God to deliver them and to rescue them. And God came with a, a, a power and lots of kind of plagues, as it were, came on um, uh, Egypt. And finally, the, the final plague came, the, 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 the sentence of death on the firstborn. And, uh, but the Israelites were told to kill a lamb, to put the blood on the, on the gate post, uh, on the post and across the uh, lintel, and that, that God, uh, the angel of death, uh, I believe that's Satan, not God, the angel of death would pass over, wouldn't be able to get them, and they would be free, and that was called the Passover. And then they went from there through the Red Sea, which is kind of like a kind of baptism. They went down into the Red Sea, uh, as it were, and, and came up out of the other side. And as we were heard in the, uh, chapter, chapter 9, Nehemiah, that, that their enemies, the Egyptians, pursued them, and the sea closed over them. And then <clears throat> they uh, went to Mount Sinai. God gave them the Ten Commandments. And, um, but even while they were having the Ten Commandments, uh, we heard that um, they made a golden calf and worshipped this golden calf and were basically having a sex party while Moses uh, was up on the mountain. And uh, Moses came down, broke the tablets of stone in anger, and then God said, no, I'm going to remake it and remake the nation. And so what happened for 40 years, they wandered around in the wilderness uh, living in tents. And the amazing thing we heard in, in, in the reading was that for 40 years, because uh, they'd set off on basically a, a two, three-month journey, but they basically had the same clothes for the same 40 years. I know some of you get very worried if you wear the same clothes. I promise not to look at my family. Uh, get very worried if they wear the same clothes, uh, or if you wear the same clothes twice. But actually, um, you know, these, uh, the Israelites carried, um, uh, 
carried their possessions, walked through the, the wilderness for 40 years uh, until God uh, brought them into the land. And when they were in the wilderness, they ate bread from heaven, which they called manna, which means, what is this? Uh, and they ate that every day, and then God provided uh, meat on a Sunday, which I think is very appropriate. And then, and also provided water from a rock. And we'll find out later on that actually uh, Paul says that that rock was Jesus, and it says this rock followed them around, which is interesting. How did that work? But we'll just pass on that one. But it's almost like the presence of God was with them with Jesus, and also uh, a, a pillar of fire and cloud followed them and led them finally into the land. And it said in that reading that with upstretched hand, God had said to promise to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. And so he finally fulfills his promise. And then, um, and he says that their descendants become numerous as the stars in the sky. I was looking out at the meteorite shower with my son this week. I don't know if anybody was sad enough to do that. Was anybody do that this week? You didn't even know there's a meteorite shower, did you? How sad are you? How sad am I? But I saw, and we just think, man, there's loads of stars in Cheltenham. You can see lots of stars in Cheltenham, but imagine what it's like with no streetlights. So if you've ever been to one of those places, and God promised Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky. So that's the, the story, and we said <clears throat> that kind of tracks a little bit with the story that we're in, in terms of that's the first part of the story, but the, the, the gospel of Jesus kind of tracks like that, that we're in a garden, we've uh, uh, a, a promised land, a land of goodness, but we uh, uh, fell into sin, we became enslaved into sin, uh, uh, became slave to sin, Jesus said we're slaves to sin, we couldn't get free, we have nothing we can do, a bit like we're in Egypt, and then God came, uh, Christ died as the Passover lamb to set us free, his blood saved us so the uh, death could not get us, uh, we passed through the waters of baptism, uh, just as Jesus passed through, uh, through death and, uh, and came out of the grave, and we also are, as it were, living in earthly tents, and that's the kind of where we left it last uh, time. And we said that actually that the people heard this story of God's goodness and God's compassion and God's amazing grace and they cried, they wept and felt incredibly uh, moved by, I guess, his goodness but also by their, by their sinfulness. And Nehemiah says, don't weep because God's made a solution. It's fine, he's going to bless you and keep you. And, <clears throat> and we finished sort of halfway uh, through there. Okay. <clears throat> so actually, the, one of the things I just want to pick up at the end that I didn't get a chance to finish with last week is, is actually uh, about repentance. We talked a lot about that. And you probably, if this is the first time or second time you've come, you thought, man, this is heavy church. So we talked about repentance last week and repentance this week. Where's the fun? But actually, um, that, that we talked about uh, repentance. And one of the things that we find in Nehemiah chapter 9 is they quote... They quote the, the words of Moses about their own uh, brokenness and their own sin. And they say that God is the forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And they quote that about when they made the, they made the, the golden calf and they sinned against God, but yet God didn't abandon them. God didn't let them go. God didn't uh, uh, just say, right, I'm done with you. But he, he, when they cried to him, he, he forgave them. And one of the things I just thought would be helpful just to, to pick up uh, uh, from that would be that actually all of us have done that. I don't think you've... Ooh, that was a good one, Jonah. <laughs> he says, get on with it. <laughs> um, all of us, all of us, although we've never worshipped a golden calf, all of us are in that same story that we've all... In, in many ways, we've all got, we've got idols in our heart. We've, we've decided in ourselves that we're going to put our trust in something else 
other than God. And so it's easy to say, oh, I wouldn't have done that if Moses had gone up in the mountain and I'd have been the children of Israel waiting for Moses to come down. I'd have been the faithful one. But actually what happens is that, that God has gone into heaven, but yet we still continue to act as if he's not there. So we continue, still continue to act as if he's not God. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, we all have um, what uh, Archbishop William Temple said, uh, uh, we have idols in our heart. He said that your true religion is what you do with your solitude. Just think about that. Your true religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, what you think about and what you daydream about when nobody's looking or nobody's there, it's almost like Moses had gone away. What did they dream about? They dreamed about going back to Egypt. They'd rather go back and be slaves and worship this golden calf than they would um, com- uh, comfort God. And Tim Keller, um, two quotes from him. He says this. He says, in other words, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. So when you've got nothing to do, what do you do? What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What is it that occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? And actually it's quite challenging, isn't it? Because actually we'd like to say that when I've nothing else to think about, when I've got nothing else to do, my heart goes to delight in Jesus. And that's the kind of correct answer. But actually we know that, that, that sometimes if we really reflect on our hearts, that actually we're just like the children of Israel. Our hearts go to all kind of other things. And Tim Keller calls these the, the idols of your heart. And he talks about repentance, and we were talking about last week, so I'm just kind of nailing that down and then we'll press into the second part. But he says this, true repentance is not by willpower or, to, or trying to live differently. And you think, hang on a minute, how am I supposed to be different? How am I supposed to be different? If my, if my thoughts and my actions and my hearts go to something else, some career pro- progression, some thing that people think, yeah, I'm going to be great, or maybe some lust or some desire or some addiction or something that your heart desires to go, how am I supposed to stop that? Surely I'm supposed to grit my teeth and say, I'll do better. What if every time I I fall into sin because I'm thinking, I I just need a relationship, I'm on my own, I need a relationship, and you go into a relationship, fall into sin, and you think, how am I going to stop that? Surely willpower is going to help me. Or if if every time you're constantly thinking, if I bought this thing off off Amazon, if I had this thing and I bought it off Amazon, if I got that, I'd be happy. How how are you going to stop that? Is it willpower? Or thinking, no, I'm just not going to do that. But Tim Keller brilliantly says, Jesus must become more beautiful in your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your heart idol. In other words, there's something about the loving Jesus that stops you sinning. And I think that, that we're all on a journey to that. Paul says, not that I've already been made perfect, but I press on to know him. I want to know him and I want to be made different. And the, the, the heart of repentance is not, just, is not just saying, oh, I feel sorry that I keep messing up. But the heart of repentance is, I, I, it's, I want more of him. And the more I go on as a Christian, the more I feel desperate. I need Jesus. 
I need him to change me and transform me. And I think that, that that's what we ended with last week, that actually there's, he says, come, eat, celebrate. And we broke bread and said, come, eat, celebrate. Come, feed on Jesus, not just in terms of a symbol of a meal, but his life within you so that you can walk free. But it's interesting that then the next day after that, sort of a sense of repentance and that emotional stuff, they, the, the, the leaders of the families get together and they, they, make, they have a discussion about, well, what are we going to do? So it says on the first day they read the, the, the book, Ezra read the law for like the whole day and then they repented and wept. And then the, then the second day they said, well, what are we going to do? It's almost like the small group leaders get together and say, okay, so, so we understand we've got to repent. We understand we've got to live differently. What are we going to do? And they do a really funny thing. It's what, and that is called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what's happened, actually, if you've around Christians at any time at all, I'll read that for you because it's up there, and then I'll talk about it. During the Feast of Tabernacles, all Israelites were to dwell in temporary tabernacles or tents. They had to make, go out into, uh, the, cut down branches of trees, palm branches, and they were to kind of make a tent of these palm branches. And they were to live in it for um, seven days. And these temporary tabernacles or shelters were to remind them that God had delivered them out of the land of Egypt, we talked about that, and provided them with uh, light uh, and food and water in the wilderness. So God is the God who delivers and God who provides. And the feast also was looking forward to when God would dwell with them again. God would tabernacle again with them and be with them just like he was in the, in, the, in the desert. Now, it's interesting. There's a whole load of, if you go online and you type Feast of Tabernacles, uh, apart from it not being very exciting reading, you find loads of Christian groups are like doing all kind of mad stuff with this Feast of Tabernacles. Oh, we've got to do this and we really should do that. In fact, I met a lady and she said, no, we should be doing this. We should all be doing this in September, you know, in the 20th of September, we should all kind of camp out in our garden for a, for, for, for a week. Uh, and there's all kind of mad stuff around it, but I think actually, and I was going to think, well, I'll just pass over it, but I thought actually if we drill down into it, maybe there's some lessons for us. And one of the things that I think is interesting is that they, they remembered during the Feast of Tabernacles how they messed up, and they remembered how God delivered them. Uh, and one of the things, if you, and we didn't ha- have it read, but, but what happens is after Naomi, the finish where Naomi went on, they, they continue with this story. Their story continues. So they're in the promised land, and you think, it's all good now. But their story continues, and it says, but we disobeyed and rebelled against you and turned our backs on the law. They killed your prophets. They're talking about their ancestors. They killed your prophets. You'd warn them in order to turn them back to you. So you gave them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But we cried out to you, and from heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion, there it is again, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they did again what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, and so they, they ruled over them. And, when they, and then what happens is it goes around again, they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. For many years you were patient with them, but your, your spirit warned them through the prophets. Yet you paid no attention. You gave them into the hands of neighboring empires. But you, in your great mercy, did not put an end to them or abandon them for you, a great and merciful God. And then it even ends with, See, we are slaves today. 
Slaves in the land you gave to our ancestors. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you've placed over us. They rule over us as they please, and we're in great distress. And what you get is this pattern, and you started almost at the, uh, uh, the mountain. You get this pattern where they, um, Moses is up the mountain, and they make a golden calf. And then they ask God to forgive them. God forgives them, and then he's with them. And then they get into the promised land, and you think, well, that's all good. And then what happens is they drift off into their own... Um, sin, they drift off into their own comfort, and then gradually they forget God, and God abandons them, and then their enemies overrun them. And then they cry out to God, and God remembers them, and he comes and delivers them and provides for them, and then they come, and they're in a good place, and there's blessing and stuff, and then what happens is they forget again, and it says time after time after time, this pattern goes on. So while they're in, in the Feast of Tabernacles, I guess they're remembering this first blow-up, how they messed up, and they're remembering how God was gracious to them. But as they're doing that, they're thinking, this is a recurring pattern. And I thought about that, and I made this little circle. If you don't like circles, sort of diagrams and stuff, if it's a little bit too deterministic for you, and you think, my life doesn't really follow these nice, neat boxes, I'm sorry. But this is what I see sometimes in my life, but sometimes I see in the patterns in Christians, and it shouldn't be the, the pattern that we're following. So what happens is you become a Christian. Or you, God forgives you. Or you have this kind of encounter with God, this like mountaintop encounter like Moses. Or God sets you free like from Egypt and you say, I'm free from my stuff. I'm free from my sins. I'm free from the things that go on. And then and God gives you, God gives his deliverer and he gives you provision. You think, my life's good. God's blessed me. I'm doing well. My family are well. Because if you, often I find that people who are Christians, they, 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 they tend to parent better. I'm not saying, you know, I guess the whole population, but, but people who become Christians. In fact, uh, Joel Edwards, who was the uh, director of the Evangelical Alliance, uh, he, he's an Afro-Caribbean guy. He talked about when, when Afro-Caribbean guys become, become Christians, that in his culture, he said that what happens is they experience this lift, that they suddenly start to care about family life, and they start to parent well, and they start to work hard in their jobs, and they start to do all these things. And, and it seems like God's blessing comes. And we experience that in all our culture. Now, if you're a very, very wealthy Cheltenham person, you probably don't feel that. But for some people, I know uh, a friend of ours, a really great friend of ours who served with Andy at New Day, a guy called Damien, who spoke at one of our Alpha Meals, his life was really very, very chaotic. He ended up in prison, God meets with him, and, and suddenly, from not being able to uh, have a job, I think he was working at McDonald's, nothing wrong with working at McDonald's, or he said he hated it, and then he said, I couldn't stick a job, and the chaos around his family life, but God gradually changed him, and he found a great girl, he married her, they've got kids, they're parenting those kids well, he's, he got himself a degree, he's working at the University of Bolton in their IT, and his life is completely transformed, and that is wonderful, that's what the gospel does, that, that it's not that we become Christians, so God makes us nice and comfortable and middle class with plenty of possessions, but actually, the gospel does make you live life life right not if you have experienced a bit of that but what happens is and this is what happened to Israel they get like brought into the land and God has promised it but what happens is we start to get comfy after we receive God's grace his unlimited merit unmerited favor in our life his provision in our life we start to think it's me this is what God would jump to the next slide and then jump back I don't know who's on it's Adam, thank you. Jump to Deuteronomy 8. This is what Moses said before they got into the land. Just track with me, okay? He said, now, be careful, because I know what could happen easily. 
When you, are, when you eat and are satisfied and you build fine houses and settle down, so they obviously he's talking about when they're in the land because they're living in tents uh, in the wilderness. They get into, when you build fine houses and settle down and your soul, silver and gold had increased, uh, uh, in the door it said flocks and herds, but I thought that wouldn't be very relevant for Cheltenham, uh, increased and, and all you have multiplied, in other words, you've got family members and it's all looking good, then, he says, your heart will become proud. And you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You forget he's a deliverer. In your comfort, you forget he's a deliverer. That he led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land. And he brought you water out of rock and he gave you bread to eat in the wilderness. You forget that God's a provider. You forget that he's the one that saves and he's the one that provides. And he says, and this is very poignant, he says, then you will say to yourself, my power and my strength of my hands have produced all this wealth for me. And it's so easy for you, if you are living in a a place of comfort, if you live in a place where everything seems well, that you've got what you need, you've got a fine house, you may have a little bit of silver and gold, Um, you know, you may have an overdraft, but you may have a bit of silver and gold, and you may have a nice family around you, and and Moses says to them, now just be careful. Just be careful because it's so easy to forget God. You'll forget God. He says, you'll forget God. And you'll forget it's God that did you. You'll forget the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt, who out of the land of slavery, who fed you. And you'll forget that and you'll say, I've sorted my life out myself. And one of the things that I find is so easily, then I just drift. You just drift. Life's okay. You just drift. So instead of being a, when you were in a mess, I'm, I've told you the stories when, when I became, a, the, the thing that forced me to be a Christian, I'm drunk on the uh, docks in uh, Weymouth on a New Year's Eve, so drunk I slept out on the street. And I, at that point I'm thinking, what has my life become? I must go to God. But as life progresses on, and you get comfortable, it's very easy. You don't feel the urgency, the desperation to sort it out. And you just live just like everybody else. Everybody else who thinks, yeah, I've earned my nice house, and my car, and my comfortable holidays, and, and my good job. I've earned that for me. I went to university, and I've got a job at that place up the road that employs all the graduates that we don't talk about. I, I, I work in education in Cheltenham, and it's wonderful. I've got this great, and it's all very nice. And, and Moses says, beware, beware that we don't drift in, go back to the circle, uh, Adam, don't drift into self-sufficiency. You think actually sin would be the worst thing for a church, but actually, sometimes when you sin, I'm not saying sin, I'm not saying go away and sin, but sometimes when you sin, and I know when I sin, I'm very aware of it. It was great to sing that song, wasn't it? He's taken away my shame. Things I've done in the past that I'm ashamed of. Things that I've done in the recent times that I'm ashamed of. He's taken away my shame. Sin, you're aware of that. But actually what's worse than that is I'm fine. Everything's fine. I'm self-sufficient. I can make everything happen. We can grow this church without God. We can have our families work without God. We don't need to read our Bibles. We don't need to pray. We don't need to do any of that because life's just fine. 
And that's what happened to the people, children of Israel again and again and again. They thought, life's fine. And so what God does, and you think, is that mean of him? He just gives you what you want. It says in Romans, he gave them over. Gives you over to what you want. If you start to, in your quiet moments, you start to desire something else. That's where your daydreams go. That's where your thoughts go. That's where your, the little secret idol of your heart is. God just gives you over to that. He could have said to them, fine, when they made a golden calf, yeah, go, fine, back to Egypt, you go. I mean, he does it in this case, but often when they, when they start to sleep with the women from other nations and they start to worship other gods and they start to do all that, God just says, fine, that's what you want. And the other nations invade them. And they get to a point where they think, oh my word, what is it like? We're supposed to be the people of God and my life's a mess and I've got sin and I can't get through it and we're conquered and we're overcome. And so what do they do? They cry, God help us! God help us! And what does God do? It's came again, if you read that passage again and again, he's he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, patient, compassionate, he's loving. He comes and forgives you. And you think, oh, that's wonderful. You get in a meeting sometimes, and I, I know sometimes I can be a bit like that, and I'm, I was worse when I was younger. I've got to be in a meeting where it's just like rocking, you know, soul survivor, or this great meeting, and the Holy Spirit's there, and you just say, oh, God, he comes, and just like, and you think, oh, yes, it's all good now. Oh, it's great now, isn't it? And then like a couple of weeks later, it's all, well, I'm happy now, I'm fine now, and you just start to drift again. And I think that we must understand that this, this pattern, it, it, is, it can't be our pattern. And the Feast of Tabernacles is a way to remind us, no, that's not our pattern. And I'll tell you why in a moment. Let me just read that this, I'm not making this up. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this. It's under, in your Bible, it's under warnings from Israel's history. It says this. Our ancestors... We're all under the cloud. It doesn't mean they're having a bad day. What it meant was that the, the presence of God was with them. Wow. Don't we look for that? People fly to California and all over the world. Oh, I just want the presence of God. The presence of God is in that place. I remember John Wimber famously saying that uh, people cross the world to encounter God, but won't cross their bedroom floor. And it always gets me. I think, oh, yeah, please send me to South Africa for a great conference. You know, whatever. It was good. Uh, but you know that sense they were all under the cloud and they passed through the sea all baptised they were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea they ate and drank spiritual food whoa thank you they drank from the, the same spiritual drink I think it's talking about Jesus drinking from Jesus drinking from his spirit they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them that's what I mean it's like followed them around and that rock was Jesus Christ Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And it says, now these things occurred as, say the word, examples, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things. Do not be idolaters as some were. So let's just land this down. So what's the Feast of Tabernacles? What's seven days living in a tent to do with all that. You're probably thinking, I'm not quite joining the dots, let me try and help you. I don't think it means you should go to 
new wine or soul survivor, although they can be great. Seven days at one of those summer camps, you know, uh, Stonely it used to be with our network or West Point or, you know, you go to those camps and for seven days you're in a tent and, you know, Mike Pilavachi stands at the front and says, come Holy Spirit, and it's, whoa. And you think, yes, I'm so glad I'm here. And, and, and so it could be that. But I think there's something about that tent dwelling that speaks to both our comfort and our suffering. So you've got to understand the children of Israel went through this cycle of comfort, everything's fine, and they went through this cycle of suffering, everything's terrible. And the Feast of Tabernacles speaks to both of those. It's up there already, so you're already reading and not listening to me. That's the trouble with PowerPoints, isn't it? So let, this, let me just read what I thought about suffering, then I'll talk about it. In suffering, if you're suffering, if you're in that state, like the people of Nehemiah were, that we're living in the land, but yet we're slaves. Every time I try and get a job, it all goes wrong. I've got no money. Uh, the, the, you know, I've got a horrible boss. I've got no relationships. I'm abandoned. I'm lonely. I'm struggling with this. If you're in that situation of kind of, I feel suffering, what does the Feast of Tabernacles say? It says, remember the story you're in. Remember the story you're in, that your ancestors, our ancestors, lived in tents. And God provided for them for 40 years. They messed up and God provided for them. They, were, they, they sinned and God was good to them. And what it's saying is, even in their wanderings, God was a really loving father. It says, I long to gather you. It says, I carried you. Sorry, I carried you on eagle's wings. Because you're precious to me. And, it, and, and if you're suffering, you need to understand God is the one who delivers. God is the one who provides. I know when things are difficult, I tend to think, well, I will be the solution. I'll deliver myself. Or I'll provide for myself. I'll dig around and look for a solution for myself. But actually, when you're in really dark corner, when, when life is really difficult, or you're, you're depressed, or it's just things, there's no hope. You've got to remember, God saves, God provides, God is faithful and compassionate. God can bring us into a good, his good land. I know that, that, that uh, if you're struggling in, in your marriage, you can think, there's no hope for me. It's just, I want out. And, but yet, it's, it, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles says, no, there is hope. Because God can take a rebellious people who've messed it up, in, who are living in the desert, and he can make them a great nation. But they didn't get there straight away, but it says God can provide and bring you into his good land. The Feast of Tabernacles shout, there's nothing permanent about your lives of suffering. Actually, even if you suffer for all your life, and you can read these stories. I read a, uh, if you've ever read this story, you think it's, it's almost untrue because the, you know, it's so staggering. There's a book that I read some years ago called The Heavenly Man. Has anyone read that? It's basically this Chinese guy who suffers for his faith in China. And I know that situation in China is, is softening in some way, areas, but in other areas it's still quite hard and the church is persecuted. And he, he suffers, his family are taken away and killed, he's in prison, you know, he's, he's left outside in the cold for day after day after day, he's tied up naked, he's beaten, you know, he passes out, they break his bones, and it's like, oh! And you think, well, when, when's it all going to end? And he doesn't th- think, he, he talks in the book about, Actually, I don't mind suffering because Jesus suffered. 
Because he says, actually, I'm looking for a life to come. But my perspective is not about this life. It's about I'm living for a life to come. I'm not living in this earthly tent, as it were, as Paul talks about our bodies. I'm not living this earthly life. There's a great hope of a life to come. And I know that God can break in in suffering and does and changes things. But even if you suffer and you think, well, why did that person die? Or why did that happen? Or why did that happen? Or why has this happened to me? God says, actually, there will be justice and there will be an end to suffering because the life you're in, this life of suffering, is not eternal. It's temporary. It's like a tent that you live in for seven days and then you move back into the good land. And if you suffer, if life is hard, think, actually, there's a future. Paul says this in Corinthians. He says, we do not lose heart. This is for those in suffering, those in despair. We do not lose heart, though we are outwardly wasting away. We're just getting old. We've been renewed day by day inwardly. Outwardly, it's a tent that's getting rather battered. But inwardly, there's life. It's new. Eternity is in my heart. For our light and momentary troubles. And if you read about Paul, he gets shipwrecked, he gets beaten, he gets stoned, not that kind of stone, stoned with stones. You know, he, he's, he's just messed up, you know, and battered so many times. And he says, these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, we fix our eyes not on what is seen in the temporary tent, but what is unseen. Because since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that this earthly tent we live in will be destroyed. But we have a building from God, an eternal home in heaven. Isn't that great? That's what the Feast of Tabernacles says. It says if you're in suffering and you're in this earthly tent and you think, when is it going to end? No, God is faithful and compassionate. He's going to bring you into good land. Yeah, is that good? But what about for some of us who are in comfort? I think we called out what are the challenges? Uh, what, are the, what are the gods of Cheltenham? And one first one was education and I think the second one was, Rich, shout out, Comfort. So, thank you, Rich. If it had been one sermon, you'd have been on the bunny, but I'll credit you this week. Okay, what about comfort? In comfortable complacency, it's God who saves and provides. So, if you start to think, my life is good because I've made it good, you are on dangerous ground. If you start to think that my money and my possessions and my earthly things have given me some status, some identity, you know, I go to the right shops, I wear the right clothes, I drive the right car, I've got all the identity markers of success. The Feast of Tabernacles says, no, it's all temporary. It's all temporary. Jesus says, do not store up yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Don't do that. That's temporary. Where do we do it? Read it. Let's read it together. Store, is it there? Store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you desire is what you get. 
And it says that all these things are passing. So it says, come out of your comfortable house and your comfortable life and for seven days, live in a tent and remind yourself it's all just very temporary. In fact, um, Paul, uh, the writers of the Hebrews says this. Uh, sorry, so that, uh, let me just read the from the slide again because I need to get this down. It says, we're people with priorities of the age to come that our lives are just temporary shelters, earthly tents. And then it talks about Abraham. It says, by faith, who's the original tent liver, as it were, lived like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did his sons Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder his God. He's looking for God's eternal purposes on the earth. God's eternal purposes. So let me just give you two, two three things, and then we'll land this down. So what should we do? If I'm, so how do you get that sense of, I'm going to live in a tent? Do you understand how, what it does for you in terms of despair? It says there's hope. And in terms of comfort, it says it's all temporary. How do you do that? I thought of five, and I could have gone into big details, but I'm just going to ask you how these might work to tell you that your life is temporary and there's other things at, at work. So how does these things, spiritual disciplines... Oh, okay, this is a question. What spiritual practices move us from living in the temporary and the momentary and move us to live in the light of eternity, of the eternal, the permanent and the momentous? So these are five I've got real quick. So first one, you can talk to your perso- person after you. Confession. What is confession? Confession is, is saying, I've sinned and messed up. It's, it's about taking your mask off and being open about your stuff. How does that help you to realize uh, that it's, God is, uh, that eternity is more important than what's now? Or shall I just do that one for you and then we'll try the next one? Okay, so, so Frank, so, do you know why you don't tell people why, where you've messed up and sinned? Why don't you do that? That might be an easier question. You want to save face. Because your reputation and pe- how people view you is more important than eternity, dealing with your stuff. That's why we don't do that. So confession is saying, actually, I am willing to, I am willing to, to, to expose my weaknesses and, 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 and that trash my image management because I know that sin will destroy me in eternity. We don't often think of it like that, do we? But sin destroys us in eternity. What about fasting? How, does, how might fasting focus us, this is an easy one, how might fasting focus us from, on, not on the temporary, but on the eternal? Anyone want to answer? It, come on, there's not that many of us here, it's about a class size. How does fasting do that? Come on. Go on, Andy. Yeah, so what happens is food is all about the physical and the here and now, isn't it? It's about feed me now. Do I want food now? I mean, you know, I've got food issues that my wife would say, uh, uh, probably worse than they really are. But, you know, I, I think, oh, I want food. Give me food. So I went to my sister's for um, food the other night, and she served some vegetarian thing. I was like, oh, this is just the worst thing that could have possibly happened. <laughs> what are we doing here? She's my sister. So what I had to go, I had to go to Real Burger yesterday for lunch to get a top-up. <laughs> So I have got food issues, I know. But fasting, fasting says food issues 
greedy person. I want to give myself Ben and Jerry's or whatever. Uh, that, that thing says, actually, no, body, you're just a temporary thing. You're not running this show. Because I'm going to seek you, God of eternity. And my life is shaped around you. And that's my desire. How might generosity do it? Quick. How might generosity say, I mean, I've given you a clue in the thing. How might generosity help you to say, I'm going to, it's a temp- my life is temporary and I'm living for a different form of eternity. How might generosity do it? Someone else. Come on. Great. So it, it says my money and my stuff for me, actually I'm going to give it away. Why? Because I can't take it with me, but I know it can do great things in this life. That's why we, we want to give, give away. But often we think this is my money and my time is mine. And I'll give God a tiny bit, a tenth, if, he's a good, if, he's, if the service is good. I'll give him a tip if the service is good. But no, it's a different attitude to say, no, all I have in this life, my talents, my treasure, my time is temporary. I'm going to give it all away. Serving's the same, isn't it? To cut to the chase. Serving's the same. It's saying, actually, my time is not my own. My comfort is not my own. I'm going to serve. And worship... How does worship do that? This is an easy one. How does worship mean that we're living in a tent and not in, a, not in comfort houses, comfortable houses and comfortable lives? How does worship set us free from despair? Because it takes us into the very God whose life we're focused around, doesn't it? Let me just finish with this. So when Jesus goes to the Feast of Tabernacles, what does he do? They used to have this ceremony where they used to pour water what used to happen is that after just living in tents and reminding themselves of the water, they had this ceremony where they used to pour water. I'm not going to pour the drink, but I remind myself it's here. And almost like the high priest would get this water and he'd pour it almost like into a funnel behind the altar. Big load of water from the Pool of Siloam and pour it into a funnel. And then they made this pipe or whatever that would come and the water would flow out from under the altar. And it was a way of saying God provided from his very presence, provided water for us. And they'd imagine, so Jesus goes to the feast, the high priest is doing all his stuff, he's got the big, the big jug of water, he pulls it all in, and out comes a tiny little trickle, and they all go, hey, amazing. Yeah? And Jesus, it says, Jesus observed this. Jesus says, on the last and greatest day of the feast, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, where everybody's they, they remind themselves that God delivers, that God provides, stood up and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. In other words, you get the, the life of God in the desert, Right within you. Inwardly, you, outwardly you're wearing away, but inwardly you get the life of God within you. And then John says as an editorial, by this, Jesus meant the Spirit. Those who, those who believe were later to receive. The best way, or one of the best ways, is to worship God and say, fill me with your Spirit. It, Paul says it's the deposit, the guarantee, the down payment of the future now. So what we're going to do is we're going to break bread as we're, we're going to do every week, but can, can you take that up? Can you take that away? So, people can so we're going to break bread. I'll break it and then you're on. 
And we're going to remind ourselves that that's a temporary, this is a temporary journey we're on. But actually we're going to remind ourselves that God is the God of bread of life who gives us life in the wilderness, in the despair. He's the one who gives us comfort much more than our best fine wines and our expensive things. That he's the one. So this is my body broken for you. Feed on me. Feed on me in your secret moments, in those moments you're daydreaming. Feed on him by faith. And then the cup. It's the Passover that this remembers, but but there's a sense where this is water from the rock, if you'll allow me a little bit of license. This is life from the rock. This is, this is a sense of his life in me, his blood. That's what, why blood is used. It's, it's, it's his life in me. And his spirit is life to us. So what I want us to do is the band are going to come back and we're going to worship. And we're going to say, as we take bread and wine, in my despair, God, you are my hope. In my comfort, God, you are my provision. I'm not. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.